On this episode of Doctor Who's That, we talk about mustache-twirling Mongols, cave hobos, and the fabulous world of condensation. Hello, and welcome back to Doctor Who's That, the show where we take an unlucky test subject, well, let's say a lucky test subject, that's Bay, and introduce him to Doctor Who, one story at a time, starting back right at the beginning. I am your Doctor Who expert, Sean Gleason. And I am your Doctor Who old fan of the modern series, not really an expert. But um, rewatching some and watching old uh, old episodes anew, uh, Andy Walker. I'm your Doctor Who newbie, your Whobie, I guess. Um. <laughs> and with us today, we have two guest hosts. You might remember Kieran from our introductory episode. Kieran, go ahead and briefly introduce yourself again. Hello, uh, I'm Kieran Cowan. I've been a Doctor Who fan since I was four years old, and I'm really excited because this was one of maybe two or three stories I had never watched start to finish before. I had seen the half cool. an hour version that was used as a DVD extra, and I knew oh. sort of what was in it, but a lot of this was really new to me, and there isn't much Doctor Who stuff that I can say that about. Cool, cool. And also, uh, we have with us Juan. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Juan Francisco. I hail from the faraway land of Mexico beyond the border, and um, I have been watching Doctor Who in one you know, form or another since the early 80s, and uh, I'm a huge fan. And uh, also, regarding Marco Polo, I have only read the uh, you know the novelization of it, so it, it was also pretty exciting to be able to see some of the uh, animatics and everything that is available. All right, well, thank you. And in today's episode, we're looking at the fourth serial, Marco Polo. Marco Polo was also known as Journey to Cathay in the early days of production. So, looking at the state of the show up to this point. Thanks to the Daleks, the show's survival is no longer in doubt. It's been given six more months, which the BBC sees as the lifespan of a children's show. So things are looking good. Um, also, thanks to the Daleks, Sidney Newman has given the reins completely to Verity Lambert. He figures, okay, she knows what she's doing. She gets this show better than I do. So she's fully in charge now. And Newman's goal at this point is to ensure the long-term survival of the show. He sees this as a show that has actual long-term potential, and he wants to convince the BBC that it's more than just the Dalek show. Of course, he's still holding on to a potential reappearance of the Daleks as a trump card to make sure that the show does get extended, but, you know. You gotta milk that money, Cal. Exactly. Milk that Dalek. Yeah, I mean, he, he is looking for something else to be a job besides the Daleks, just because he'd rather not rely on Terry Nation and Terry Nation's crazy shark agent to make sure that the show continues. He doesn't hate these actors so much that he wants to keep them in the Nightmare Tomb studio until the end of time, either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as 
this particular story has seven episodes and also a lot going on in the background. We're going to split our discussion of this one into two episodes. So today we'll cover the pre-production stuff and we'll talk about the first few episodes and then next time we'll finish off the serial. And as usual, we'll start with some of the important people involved with Marco Polo. This serial sees the return of Waris Hussein as the director of all but episode four. As you might remember, he was the director of the first serial and Unearthly Child. This would be his last work with Doctor Who. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, it is. I was going to say, although it seems like that might explain a little bit the kind of return to that sort of after school special historical diorama feel that the whole episode had. (laughs) Well, a lot of that has to do with the writer. We'll talk about him a bit later. But yeah, it's there's definitely some things here that, you know, it's sad to see him go, but he wanted to move on to work on some one-off TV plays rather than a TV series. And eventually he'd go and work in movies and have a pretty long career. I think he was making movies until just a few years ago. He was basically the, he had like 20 years where he was the king of prestige US TV miniseries from the 70s and 80s too. He He made swarms of them. The one time they tried to get him back for an anniversary story of Doctor Who, he he actually wanted to do it, but was just too busy directing like three different network TV miniseries and couldn't couldn't find the time to. (laughs) Yeah, so he went on to have a good career after this. Episode four was directed by a man named John Crockett. He'd also direct another serial written by the same writer as this one called the Aztecs, a couple stories from now. Uh, Crockett was previously a theatrical artistic director, and one other contribution to the show was he apparently suggested a number of historical topics for the show to tackle, and looks like six of those suggestions that he made ended up being used in the future. Not sure if they were, you know, directly taken from his list or not. So basically, the one or two of the higher-ups asked him as an outsider what historical periods they thought the BBC could do. And if you cut out the ones that they'd already commissioned, like from the rest of this season, there are about eight more historical stories, and six of them are things that were in his letter. Now, a lot of those are fairly obvious cuts. They were going to get to ancient Rome sooner or later. But there are some fairly specific topics that he... he you know, ends up laying out a blueprint for what the show does over the next couple of years. And he was there entirely because Boris Hussein got sick. Yeah. He was just too sick to come in for two weeks. (laughs) It's pretty serendipitous. Yeah. So the music in this story was done by Tristram Carey, who you might remember from the Daleks. Aside from his bits of music, though, it also used some stock Chinese music. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so you you could easily tell which bits those are, right? You don't <laughs> yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that that aside, I actually thought that the music in these episodes was really pretty cool. Um, the sandstorm was like nutballs. Um, yeah, that was definitely my favorite. Yeah, so and that was his showpiece too. He, they went and got an avant-garde, you know, electronic music composer in 
specifically to do stuff like that. It's also worth noting. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I think it's important to to bring attention to that for all those uh, man babies who are always crying about diversity and whatever and that how terrible it is and how it wasn't like that. Uh, Varis Hussein, he's a super great director, and it's important to know that uh, you know this uh, particular section of of. Uh, uh, of the doctor has always has always been involved in, in in you know with a lot of diversity, which is way more than you can tell you know from 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 other uh, series and uh, TV shows of the time. True enough, and yeah. you've got some at least one woman in this story is a legendary Bollywood actress who just happened to turn up for a small part in this, and she was still acting till after the age of a hundred, apparently. Wow. Yeah, she's she's got a better role. Of uh, think of one more story like I think she's in the crusade but uh, but, but yeah like um, Ping Cho's Handmaiden was a was a big deal in Indian cinema the production design is you know kind of one of the important things to talk about in this story which of course we can't really see what that production design looked like but based on the telesnaps that we see you could tell this was a pretty lavish production i mean this story was really pushing the limits of lime grove studio it seems like a real shame that we have to do this one in a reconstruction because the stills from it there was obviously a lot of art and time that went into this serial and we really only get kind of a faint impression of it what's amazing to me is that these the telesnaps the photos that we have here were all taken so that the production people could have a visual record of their work when there was no video available and as i look at this i'm thinking this isn't a really great format for that yeah <laughs> Just the sheer fact that you have so many different locations over the course of this serial. And I mean, yeah, this is just stretching the studio <laughs> as much as possible. And then beyond that, I mean, I know, Kieran, you were telling me that the sandstorm apparently almost blinded several of the actors. Yeah, well, they didn't really use sand because that... that would be silly no they instead were firing high-speed sawdust at everybody that's much better <laughs> that's actively worse that that's <laughs> yeah. <blind> someone yeah <laughs> i mean if they'd have put sand into a wind cannon or something i suspect that would have been a similar <laughs> problem <laughs> yeah i suspect william hartnell was really glad he was off sick that week yeah but you know a lot of work went into this design. Just the production designer, Barry Newberry, apparently based his designs on a mixture of historical research on 1900s Korean architecture. A lot of things are based on, you know, the descriptions found in Marco Polo's memoirs. Just a lot went into this production, and it's a shame that we can't actually see what it looked like in, you know, moving pictures because all the production photos that are in full lavish color look incredible yeah yeah and, and even i don't know even the the various reconstructions which we'll get to in a minute the the, the ones that at least involve actual production stills um even though yeah it's severely limited and it's it's a crying shame that we didn't and can't see it yeah i mean hopefully they'll be found in a vault in africa or something like some of the other ones were but it's still 
pretty good. You know, it's still just a little bit of, you know, imagination you can get in there. And I loved it. So some of the guest stars in this serial, we have some common British TV actors like Mark Eden as Marco Polo and Darren Nesbitt as Tagana. Both of whom are still alive. So, you know, one of those nice rarities from the early days of the show. There's also an actor named Tut Lemkow, who appears here in the role of Shifty Foreigner that he would play to perfection through the rest of his career in various Doctor Who serials and a number of movies. He was in things like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it needs to be said that uh, his background as a sinister man of Arab descent with wearing a lot of eye patches was entirely due to his background as a Scandinavian dance instructor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the perfect fit for that role. <laughs> Can we get some kind of Swedish ballroom dance instructor to to play this sinister Arab trader? Yes. Yes, we can. Also, why is the director burying his head in his hands? <laughs> there was also an actress named Xenia Murden, who plays the first in a series of one-story companions named Ping Cho, and she was quite possibly the first minority actor to appear in Doctor Who, because, of course, pretty much everybody else in this story is just some British guy in yellow face. But she is Burmese rather than Chinese, but for Britain in the 1960s, that's not terrible. <laughs> but the real important person, I guess, who we should talk about here is the writer of this serial. John Lucarotti was born in England. He went to Canada, where he began his TV writing career at CBC, where he worked with a fella by the name of Sidney Newman, name that you all might recognize. So while at CBC in 1955, Lucarotti wrote an exhaustively researched 18-part radio script about Marco Polo. Sadly, the actual production no longer exists, but that script would become the basis for this Doctor Who episode. Keep all your old work. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this was a subject that he previously had experience writing about and that he had an interest in. It had been a big success, too. Online, you can at least find the various radio listings for it. And they made a big product. It was, it was a fairly high-profile drama production for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's radio branch in the 50s. So Lucarotti moved to England around the same time that Newman did. And again, he worked with Newman at ABC, where he wrote some of the scripts for Newman's show, The Avengers. And when Newman went over to the BBC and started, you know, creating Doctor Who, he suggested his old friend John Lucarotti as a potential writer. So Lucarotti met with Whitaker and Lambert about reworking that old Marco Polo script of his, and we end up with this story. Lucarotti would go on to write a few more Doctor Who stories. He wrote this one as well as two other very excellent historicals, probably two of the best of the other historicals besides this one. And he would also write another sci-fi script that would be heavily rewritten and turned into a serial that would really begin one of the best three-year periods of the show's history in the 1970s. So... He was a, you know, pretty important uh, Doctor Who writer. Even if he sadly wasn't more prolific with it. Yeah. 
but he cared about detail. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I think, you know, now more so than any other historical, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the sources that Lucarati used, because really, this is really the historical that pays attention to things like history and geography and things like that. You can definitely tell because they keep mentioning it. Yeah. Oh, there's a, they've got maps and they know how to use them. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting when you see those Indiana... Well, the recreations of those Indiana Jones-style maps. And sadly, the originals, we can't actually see what those look like. They definitely did have them, though. Yeah. In, in the story, we know that there are, that there were on-screen maps showing the progress of the journey. Yeah. So, you know, Lucarati had strong attention to detail, and the information in this serial is true based on what was known when he was writing it in 1963. It draws primarily on Marco Polo's memoirs. It takes parts of his journey he describes to Peking in 1275. It takes the story of escorting a princess in 1292. A lot of the names from the story comes from place names and the names of various Tartar rulers. Like Tigana is the name of a ruler mentioned in those memoirs as his, his Lord Nogai. So everything pretty much comes from something in those memoirs. There are some problems with the memoirs, however. There were probable indications that Marco Polo wasn't so much a world traveler as <laughs> on epic scale con man <laughs> well historians seem to go back and forth on that a lot whether you know these tales actually describe what polo did whether they describe just stories that he heard or what so the version of his work that we know comes from the mid 1300s about 25 years after polo died called the description of the world and the problem is there's no real definitive version there's a lot of different versions with you know corrupted over time so it's hard to say exactly what was in Polo's original memoirs. And a lot of what's in this story comes from a version that's a couple of hundred years later that uh, Lucarati found and really liked the writing of and found it much easier narrative to hang on to. So everything here is several degrees removed, no matter how meticulously sourced it is. So just a little bit about the, you know, Marco Polo debate on whether or not his memoirs are actually, you know, fact or fiction or some mixture of the two. Going against Marco Polo is the fact that Marco Polo isn't actually mentioned in any of the Chinese records from the time which is odd since pretty much every other European who visited China is. So that seems to be a pretty big omission if he actually made it all the way to, uh, to China. Let alone was on staff for the better part of 20 years. Yeah. 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 And China basically in that period would produce more formal surviving records in a year than India overall would in 50 just in terms of actual volume of documentation. Uh, some historians are more spoiled than others. Those Chinese records survived a lot better than some episodes of Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
97 of them, in fact. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so there's a lot of evidence that it's based on Muslim sources rather than firsthand knowledge, such as the use of Persian names for things, the lack of mention of pork, which was a staple Chinese meat, the lack of mention of foot binding. So there's a number of historians who say that Marco Polo probably only traveled as far as Karakoram, which is sort of on the India-Pakistan-China border. So not to say that he didn't travel along the Silk Road, but he didn't make it as far as he claimed. Yeah. And the movement among historians to really discredit things that that's really a 70s thing as i understand it so this as this story was made absolutely historically accurate for a given value of history except when it was more <laughs> fun to change things like the entire personality of kubla khan but we'll get to that later yeah that'll be something we talk about next episode yeah, that's another thing that it's it's uh, i mean I, I know it's jumping ahead but there's a little section there, there, i mean it's no spoiler but there's a part where somebody claims that because they have the relic of the Buddha, they have ownership of India, which makes absolutely no sense, but we'll get there. And I can't wait for next episodes. I've, I've only really watched uh, up into the part where we're discussing today. Oh, <laughs> you're going to have fun. So some things that are in favor of Marco Polo being, you know, an honest world traveler. His account is more detailed than a lot of other contemporary sources. And a number of those details have been verified. And apparently there was a 2012 analysis of his economic descriptions, which showed that he describes details of Chinese economic activity that are found in no other Western or Muslim source. So the question then becomes, where did he get this information from if he wasn't there himself? He also describes like visual features of specific, very local landmarks that wouldn't have been, you know, anything that a random other traveler would necessarily have gotten. A lot of the geographic information, it also does seem firsthand. So basically, the only thing you could conclude is Marco Polo may or may not have been lying, and historians go back and forth on this all the time. So uh, no real conclusion at all. He, he probably just had a better opinion of himself than the cons did. I mean, it sounds like uh, he he puffed himself up a bit. It's possible. If he was a liar, he was a great liar. <laughs> yeah, or he or, or he was just writing one of those uh, you know early cases of self-insertion fanfic. So, <laughs> <laughs> so as we've alluded to a few times, this serial is missing. This contains seven of the 97 lost episodes of Doctor Who. This is the first of 26 serials that have missing episodes, and it's the first of 10 serials that are just completely lost. We're not going to see another serial that's as lost as this until season three. So this is very much an anomaly. The first two seasons are mostly intact, and the next time anything is missing, it's been animated. It's going to be a good while before you have to do this again. So I'm genuinely curious, for those of you who've never telesnapped before, how you found this extremely different viewing experience. It, it was so weird. So we've, we've seen a few of these serials now, and 
I didn't really know what to expect. It was a lot easier to follow than I thought that it would be. It was kind of like just listening to a radio play, but I had helpful visuals to kind of lead me through the story and explain some of the action that was happening that wasn't apparent in the dialogue. But it was kind of an odd experience, and it's even stranger to me now hearing that this is the only lost serial this season because it seems so lavish in comparison to other stories that I don't know how to say this weren't as interesting (laughs) and I mean it is extremely odd that this story is missing because this was the most copied of these early serials they sold it to 19 countries so tons of copies of this was made It was sent various places, and it's odd that nothing from it survives. I mean, this is one of only three serials where there's not even a single clip that survives. You know that it's out there somewhere. It has to be. Canadian Doctor Who fans have been trying to convince the CBC to give up the copy (laughs) they've been secretly hoarding since 1964. (laughs) There's constant stories about Marco Polo being found, and there's There's other just odd stories where I know, Kieran, you mentioned something about it might have existed in Nigeria as recently as the 90s. I don't want to take complete credit for this. There's an excellent YouTube series uh, about the missing episodes that's been coming out recently. And the host of that alludes to it that basically in the mid 90s, someone in Nigeria called up the BBC to say we've got a bunch of old Doctor Who stuff here and Marco Polo apparently got mentioned and whoever it was at the BBC and this is at the in the mid 90s after one of the biggest deals in in years had been a whole Doctor Who story getting found in Hong Kong that they just said nope not interested and so if they did exist they got jumped no yeah yeah so Thanks, random person at the BBC. Thanks, random person at the BBC, (laughs) in sarcastic air quotes, is basically the t-shirt you're going to be drawing up after a few more of these. I mean, for a long time, even the still images from this story apparently were missing until, you know, it turned out those telesnaps were just in worse Hussein's attic. Basically, he had been the person who pushed to use the telesnap guy's service. And so almost all of the other stories where there were telesnaps, especially if the director hadn't bought them off him, were all there after he died for his sister-in-law to eventually give back to the BBC. But not this one, because Waris Hussein had wanted them. And that's why we don't have the telesnaps for episode four. Now, yeah, because this... he didn't direct those, right? I mean, that's, that's the reason he wasn't even interested in getting them. To... Yeah, because they were for his, you know, for his portfolio. Now, this is interesting. This is something I'd never heard of before. Is this still done regularly? No. There was this guy called John Cura who... Have you ever tried to take a photo with a regular camera off the TV? It doesn't work. It just (laughs) produces a mess. And he was like an ex-service photographer who, in the post-war years, approached the BBC having developed a a, a high-speed technique that could actually take photos off it. And so the BBC didn't hate the idea but they didn't use it that much and so kept him on a sort of retainer as a service so he was basically doing a proprietary thing for this and before you could have a video copy this was how various employees would be able to you know get something as photo evidence of of what they'd done if you were the cinematographer or the set designer cool just uh, this one being 
lost is baffling. It's annoying. But let's hold out hope that, you know, this is a story that a lot of people would like to see come back. And it's probably the most likely one to show up somewhere. Fingers crossed, I guess. I'm just hoping that it's like in a back room somewhere in like a school misshelved with like boring historical documentaries or something. It's going to be underneath a copy of uh, a full copy of London After Midnight, hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Guarded by the spirit of Lon Chaney. When the two stories that were found in Nigeria in 2013 were found, and the one episode had apparently been stolen after Discovery, but before Recovery, that episode is one of the longest running characters in the show's history, makes his first appearance. Imagine how much collectors would be willing to get a ho- to pay to get a hold of the first appearance in Doctor Who of beloved recurring cast member Jokes. The first Doctor Who story to feature Jokes? Well, clearly it's a collector's treasure trove. Before we get into the actual discussion of the story, just a few additional production notes. Not only is this our first sort of real historical, it's our first celebrity historical with, you know, a famous historical figure in Marco Polo. It's our first serial with live animals. And, you know, there's a monkey that shows up later in the story. And apparently that monkey was a nightmare to work with. Imagine that, a monkey. (laughs) It was not a trained monkey. It uh, was not, you know, one that was used to working on film. And apparently it just liked to bite and pee. And it bit everyone, peed everywhere. It could be the only actor in Doctor Who history to treat its co-stars worse than William Hartnell. (laughs) (laughs) And it, it panicked and spent several days hiding up in the lighting gantries, doing what it did all over the heating lights, meaning that once they recaptured it, it was a living nightmare to be on that set. This is ridiculous. I mean, (laughs) it's too hot in this studio. So, you know, the monkey probably has the right reaction. But in our first serial, there were bones from uh, an abattoir and all sorts of stuff. This is just like... And fleas. All this of is the, the crazy caveman furs were flea ridden beyond description, and apparently they were only now finally rid of the fleas <laughs> when the monkey got loose. Yeah, well, can you really blame the monkey? Though is the question. <laughs> well, no, it probably ended up with all these fleas. <laughs> So this story is also fairly unique in that it has a narrator, not something that we really see in other stories. This is probably the longest of these classic stories in terms of in-story time, taking place over several months and thousands of miles. This features the first occurrence of something that would become fairly regular over the course of these first seasons. William Hartnell falling ill and kind of missing an episode. So that's why in episode two, he barely appears. Mm. Oh, wow. That's why he's busy sulking in his tent the whole time. Although, you know, that is... I totally bought it, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't didn't even question it. They wrote around it far better than all of the times where it would happen on purpose. You know, it's not just falling sick for the next two years. They make so the next you know five years. They make so many episodes that you know people's vacations are going to get incorporated too. And a lot of the time, that is way clumsier when they had months of notice than they managed to get out of it this time with nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, this might just be my you know favorite way of treating a sick actor. 
other than in a story called The Mind Robber that occurs several years from now. Well, that's a masterpiece. That's... Yeah. <laughs> in that one, they basically just replace the actor with another actor using some fantasy wackiness. Ah, oh, the Wiseau technique. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. This sounds like the room. Now, I'm not going to go into how they do it because it is just fantastic and bizarre and amazing. Yeah, that's almost serendipity, really. Best chicken pox ever. But um, yeah. <laughs> you completely believe it. And the, the way the story is flowing, all of a sudden, it's not like they're finding a new wrinkle of something to do with with the doctor interacting with a historical figure and they have this random ordinary guy get the best of him. This is the first time. This is the kind of way they'd write around this on season 7 of other shows about time travel and and this is their first shot at this. Yeah. So this serial led to several complaints by the other actors, especially Ian Russell and his agent. So a couple stories here. Prior to episode four, since Where's Hussein suddenly got sick, they ended up writing about six minutes of new scenes for this story the day before it was to film. So nobody had time to learn their episodes. The actors were complaining. And yeah, so led to some problems there. The other issue was this was the first Doctor Who story that featured on the cover of the Radio Times in the UK, but only William Hartnell and the guest stars who played Marco Polo and Tagana were featured on that cover. So yeah, the other regulars were not happy about that. Especially probably after the success of the Daleks. And it became very hard to entirely disagree with complaints about working com uh, billing and working conditions if you were setting foot on the boiling hot studio that was reeking of monkey, <laughs> which apparently happened. Yeah. Which apparently had just been, uh, you know, been reeling of fleas. So yeah, that's not a... Not ideal, I would say. Yet somehow, despite this, despite the monkey, despite the almost being blinded by a sandstorm, Carol Ann Ford lists this as her favorite serial that she was in. Hmm. <laughs> so that's interesting. Also, last thing before we get into the discussion, due to a lack of a sci-fi story to film next, Whitaker went to Terry Nation, told him, why don't you drop that historical on the Indian mutiny that you've been working on and write us a sci-fi story that'll go into production right after this. Because, you know, since Terry Nation wrote the Daleks in, uh, you know, such a short span of time, and that turned out to be a big hit, maybe he'll capture lightning twice. We'll see if that happens in our next serial. But for now, let's get into talking about Marco Polo, and I'll hand the reins over to Andy. So, the roof of the world. This is where we begin. As we mentioned before, there's no footage, so it's a, it's a, it's a lost serial. Um, and there, there are several different ways to watch this that I would like to uh, bring up so that the listener at home can explore those for themselves uh, and follow along. The first one that I found was uh, actually um, more of an animatic kind of reconstruction. Um, and we talked a bit earlier about, um, you know, Bay, I think mentioned that this, that that's kind of odd, you know, for him. But I, I for me, I remember, um, 
I don't know whether this was because of the just the terrible budget of Nickelodeon when I was growing up, or or what, or just the. But uh, I remember seeing a lot of cartoons that were done in that style, and you know, like they they made a lot with with very little. And this one in particular that I found, and I'd like to call it out, uh, was by a guy named Josh Snares. So look him up on YouTube if you can. He did a absolutely fantastic job like of the first episode um you know, he he did as little cgi as possible for you know for various different sets uh, and so on and took stills and just kind of animated them very lightly but uh in any case it worked it worked tremendously and um you know i really wish that he would have gotten to do more than really just the first episode, uh, which was excellent. After that, my first attempt at reconstruction was this uh, 3D, like CGI animated. It's that it's, monstrosity. It's really something. I mean, it reminds me a lot of those, like um, the Machinima, like the early, like, you know, video game movies, like Red versus Blue, but like worse, you know. Yeah, and- if anyone has, has seen Where the Dead Goes to Die, it's kind of like that, but with less, you know, mentions of god's balls and stuff like that so yeah and it's really like you could tell whoever did i mean their heart was in the right place and you know good on them for spending all that effort and i'm not going to crap on them i mean i'm going to crap on them a little but uh not too much just a little just at, at various different points um but uh you know you could tell that like uh they definitely used the cg equivalent of like stock pictures you know so it's just like random uh guy with long hair random woman in business suit random other woman in business suit that is uh susan samurai i mean it's nice to have some sort of motion and you know i applaud the person who made that for Mm -hmm. doing the attempt yeah i mean there's blocking i'll give them that there's there's there are people and they look like people mostly and they move from place to place they all of course look like they they're in like scoliosis braces it's great i mean it's wonderful everybody should watch it i think but you know maybe not at first because like it'll it's definitely just you should go back and watch it that way because it's definitely distracting (laughs) um so anyway that's how i watched the first episode and then um a little bit through the second one i switched to the more common um animatics and you know we'll try to provide links to those in the in the show notes yeah and those are the loose cannon reconstructions that were i don't remember when they were made but those are some of the best reconstructions using the telesnaps that are Mm -hmm. out there yeah and they they really are quite good and those i think you can mostly find on dailymotion yes yeah that's where i ended up finding them so unless there are any like legal issues we'll we can link to them in the description um and if there are then google's your friend so we begin our episode you know where we ended off the last time the the tardis has has uh, uh, has landed They're outside they they think it's earth and there's there's for a brief amount of uh respite everybody seems to be in good spirits for just a little while you know barbara uh shows off her knowledge of geography and i remember later in the episode being like yeah barbara good job barbara barbara really seems to and then i was like oh wait a minute barbara's a history teacher right right of course so that makes a little more sense but then uh oh it turns out that the ship is broken again and the doctor is not in a good mood at all again (laughs) (laughs) but this time like he definitely takes it to that next level you know like oh we're all we're all freeze to death the future tech of the magic tardis box it doesn't really work work all that well constantly breaking right and the water's bad now you know but, the water's bad there are no lights there's no heat yeah and we're all the gonna mercury die, poisoning has stopped hopefully 
<laughs> I also wanted to, before I continue, one of the things that occurred to me while we were going over the production notes is that, as you mentioned, this is the first kind of celebrity historical. And I just remember thinking like that's like in the kind of in the grand tradition of like Scooby-Doo, you know, and there's definitely several times throughout this episode, there's kind of a like, what will the gang find out now vibe going on. And I just kept coming back to it to move the plot along. We see the the tremendous footprint, which a lot is made about several times and then completely drop but they see something there's a something that they see and they follow it and they're confronted by a gang of individuals <laughs> yeah which of course makes susan scream because i mean what doesn't yes. people eek. we can't go an episode without hearing her wail oh and she's oh she's got a cracker in this one or at least at least in this serial I'm really hoping that like we can come back and I can just kind of edit those in there. I really want to. So they get confronted and they are suspected of being evil spirits, but then they're 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 promptly saved by a white man. So who could that be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you know, Susan actually asks, "Who is this?" <laughs> right. And Barbara's like, "I'm asking myself that as well." So they are introduced to their historical figure. And then they are taken into the group uh, whereupon they find out that it is 1289. And the doctor refers to Ian as uh, was a Charlton, I believe. So there's your mispronunciation for the episode. I also like how the doctor just flat out asks, where and when are we? Right. Between that and Barbara straight up asking, is your name by any chance Marco Polo? Like, they're really not doing a good job with the are you evil spirits question like they're they're just blowing it over and over <laughs> right so and this i think believe at this point uh we are introduced to tagana and to ping cho which can somebody help me out here whether or not that's historically like is that an actual do we know if that's actually somebody from marco polo's journeys i didn't have time to look it up tagana yes it's a name that turns up sure he's a composite of four or five people mm-hmm. ping cho there are a couple of stories that she sort of suits and fits, but I, I admit I have not actually decided to earn a postdoctoral degree as part of uh, as part of prepping for this podcast, and I apologize. Okay, so we'll just go ahead and assume, like I did at the time, that Ping Cho is maybe just a little bit of a racist name, and and just move on. And we find out that you know she is uh, betrothed to be married to an old man, which of course. Susan finds totally not groovy whatsoever. And we're given a bit of an opportunity to see Susan uh, cultivate some relationships here. We also get some, you know, actual bits of attempted education here. This serial is filled with attempted bits of actual education, with, you know, Barbara telling Susan all about Kubla Khan, Ian giving us a bit of a science lesson about the temperature of water at high altitudes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely caught that one. I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's great. I mean, it's it, it gets to such a fever pitch of people expositing that at one point in episode three, most of the episode is given over to one of the guest characters taking their turn at this right? <laughs> so, as a sort of cultural exchange. Oh, and we'll get to that. The novelization is worth noting that uh, the first uh, maybe two or three pages is... Uh, just uh, Ian, uh, Barbara, and the doctor uh, trying to, um, you know, trying to explain what uh, the difference between Fahrenheit and Celsius is to each other, so which is super <laughs> weird. And then somebody asked if they are in the Himalayas, and somebody 
reply saying that they shouldn't be in the Himalayas because nobody is yodeling. So yeah, that happens on the novelization. Wow. Wow, that's even better. I mean, in 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 the show, of course, Barbara is, you know, being very knowledgeable about geography and talking about how it could be the Himalayas or it could be, you know, uh, somewhere else. And it's the, you know, I believe it's she that first refers to it as the roof of the world. This is also when we're introduced to our erstwhile villain, uh, Tagana, who immediately recognizes that the TARDIS is not normal whatsoever and begins to question this narrative of them not being evil spirits. He's he's not convinced uh, whatsoever. Cool how he was talking about it, uh, how they, they decided to have him characterize the TARDIS because of course it would be really foreign looking to him where he said it's a carriage without wheels it stands on its end like a warlord's tomb or something like that and he also noted that it would never hold all of them because of course it's bigger on the inside right so many jokes and so many you know standard staple ways of describing things all come from this story for the first time that get used over and over again in different variations for nearly 60 years now. Right. And I was a little, I was actually a little let down by that scene because it's like this immediate payoff, right? Like it's like, yep, yep, this is weird. This is out of the, out of the, out of the ordinary. And then I think it's Marco Polo who just like, ah, Buddhism. <laughs> right? like, yeah, I've, I've seen some weird stuff. I've seen some crazy things. So I'll take your word for it. We're taking this to Kublicon. Right. And then that's that. Okay. Well, all right. Marco hatches a plan here. As you said, you know, we're going to take this thing to Kublai Khan and it's going to get me home. Right. And I guess that might explain it a little bit. Uh, I just remember at the time I was like, did you don't you want to aren't you just a little? Okay, fine. But the doctor then, you know, he kind of has a a passing uh, dialogue with Ping Cho, whereupon we find out that Tagana is is an emissary of of a warlord warring with Kublai Khan and, and we're. And the doctor just does not care whatsoever uh, about that at all. He's completely dismissive of it and pretty much everyone else. It's kind of interesting to note that pretty much everyone on the trip has kind of competing priorities. Marco and uh, his family members want to get back to Europe. Tagana wants to defeat the Khans. You've got Ping Cho who... She wants something. I can't tell if she wants to marry this guy or not. Susan does not think this is a good idea, but Ping Cho, I I don't recall whether she was into it or not. She's she's going along with it. She just seemed kind of indifferent to me, you know, just kind of like, yeah, I'm marrying a 70-year-old guy. All the way along through this story, she is very accepting of whatever circumstances happen to her. Other than she quite likes Susan. And Susan's priority just seems to be hanging out with her new bestie. Definitely. And it's I, I maybe it's a it's an artifact of all these competing priorities or something, but I just kept everything I kept expecting um a lot of these discussions to like mean something or kind of pay off later. But it seems like a lot of them are just complete just you know, toss-offs, uh, maybe they're an artifact of that time or the fact that it was still kind of clinging to this idea that it was going to be like large part historical exposition. Yeah, there are a couple of ways that it's sort of interestingly awkward. There are all the ways where television grammar is just changed in 55 years. 
but there are all of the ways that the different characters don't coexist in the same space, like they <laughs> exactly. said. Exactly, yes, exactly. Tagana when... internally is a very consistent character. The things he wants and why he's doing them internally make perfect sense, but no one's reactions to that make any sense at all. It's like just everybody's like, what's up with Tagana? He's important. He would never lie. Yeah, he's only an emissary of a warlord who's here to stop a war that's not over yet. <laughs> and, and he has an evil mustache and he's turning it the whole time. So what? There's nothing wrong with a guy, right? Well, I mean, I wouldn't know. Uh, does the book describe twirling? No. Uh, <laughs> no, kind of. I mean, you know, it's the only thing that's missing. That and the uh, top hat and just, you know, uh, tying up one of the uh, girls uh, to, you know, in a, in a in, in the in the way of an upcoming railroad, but uh, I, mean, <laughs> I want to see him in a top hat now. Yeah. I mean, I'm picturing him as he was his number two in the prisoner, but that's not the same thing. It doesn't have a top act. Darn it. <laughs> Yeah. But plus, I think we're also leaving out the most important element here in ju- in in judging all of this. We're leaving out all the constant telling Barbara and Susan to shut up. Oh yeah, no, I definitely took note of that a couple of times, and, and it's like. You know, Barbara's a history teacher. Like, she's very useful. I mean, this is actually a part of history that's ostensibly somewhat documented. Maybe you shouldn't be a... And then, and then like, Ian's just like, nah, <laughs> shut up, Barbara. Let's go listen to the story or whatever. So this is where we find out that, you know, uh, plot device. Oh, nope, he can't. He's not allowed to go in that TARDIS because this is a restriction that has been placed on him because the members of the caravan still are pretty sure he's a demon so he shouldn't go in there and then this is also where through a narrative i believe that we learn that marco is keeping a secret which of course we now know um he intends to take the tardis for himself so they travel to lop and this is another they i remember them it very pointedly saying oh we just yeah we put the tardis in the courtyard and at the time, I was like, oh, oh, that's a terrible idea. This is going to go so wrong. And then, no, it's fine. It's completely fine. That's also another thing I found interesting because, I mean, as, 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 as you were mentioning, um, you know, Tigana is, is, is uh, you know, it's, it's consistent with his aims, his goals, and his mission. And, uh, I mean, he's just, I mean, going to, you know, overthrow the cannon, whatever. And it's suddenly Marco Polo, who is, like, super slimy and, oh, I'm going to steal this magic box for myself. I mean, uh, he shouldn't really need to do that i mean he should be trying to you know like like forge an alliance with the people that look like him but he's uh behaving super slimy and i, I found that one really really interesting i mean it's it's uh not something that i had seen you know previously or it, or, it, uh, or you didn't see that much uh you know in the television of those times at this point marco's just desperate and he thinks if he gives the con this you know fabulous magic gift then he'll finally just be able to get out of here and go home. Right. But at the same time, he already accepts that it's magic and that it can fly. And I remember him saying, oh, I just really want to go home. I was surprised he didn't say, can you take me there in your magic flying box? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, right? he was uh, the, the thing that he was trying to, you know, to to to, to get under the can's good graces. I mean, it, it, surprised, it surprised me a bit. So. That's going to feel a little bit too much like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well. We're already treating the TARDIS so differently than any of the previous stories and in a lot of, you know, the ones since. It's it's the first time anyone, you know, moves it around mm-hmm. and it's a part of the story other than quick back to the TARDIS. Yeah. Well, and I did enjoy this conflict, too, because this is, uh, you know, really the first, in my opinion, major conflict with like historical people and historical 
uh, personas attempting to pursue kind of, I guess, more complex desires than just ruling over the skull cave or whatever. And, you know, I wish to fulfill my uh, exciting role in history as already set down by people who know what's coming. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I also enjoyed uh, in this in this scene how the doctor basically just finds this completely hilarious. And I thought that was very on brand for the doctor, you know, kind of uh, uh, as a whole. It's maybe the, the beginning of this um arc of of him laughing in the face of danger you know they're like what are you what are we gonna do he's like i don't know yeah he just starts you know marco reveals this plan and the doctor just starts laughing hysterically by the way hartnell sells that in a way that's just so good he really does i was almost wondering is this just you know some flub they kept in or was the doctor actually just supposed to start laughing here i don't know yeah, because the act, it's really good. This is also the point, I think, which the Doctor is realizing that for a little while, at least, he is no longer the main character of this series. Yeah. That's the point where suddenly, it's not just narrating. Marco Polo is now the star of this show for the next six weeks. Yep. Right. <laughs> well, they put him on the cover of the magazine. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Right. He definitely kind of like reaches out and grabs the, you know, the viewport and centers it thoroughly on him, which I thought was very interesting. And since this is a show about a vaguely occasionally unlikable protagonist, I better do something slightly skeevy to hold the audience's attention. So and then we end this episode with the discovery that boom, 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 Tagana is has plans of his own. Shock of all shocks. So... This begins the second part, The Singing Sands, and this is where I began to watch what I found referred to on YouTube as the CGI train wreck for a little while. <laughs> and, and I should be, like I said, I should, I, 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 I'm not going to be too, too bad, but uh, Tagana as a samurai was hilarious. <laughs> I have seen that, yes. I think I'm going to watch the rest of this serial that way. <laughs> oh, gosh. You definitely should. Uh, at least go back and uh, rewatch what you've... It's it's wonderful. Though I have in my notes, uh, better than Darren Nesbitt, at least. <laughs> because while he, I'm sure he did a great job, I mean, you know, at least picking a model that looked vaguely real Asian would is a step up, I guess. Yeah, there is a mix of something we have to condemn because... Ugh. And something functionally necessary. And the simple fact is, this is a character who had to do multiple sword fights on camera without a stunt person. So the pool of actors they could use wasn't that broad. Now that's very fair. They had to pick somebody. And specifically, he had been in almost every other episode of William Russell's uh, Adventures of Sir Lancelot. Without actually having a regular character to play, he was the guy who would turn up if they needed someone to say four lines and do a sword fight. <laughs> he was so, he had he was somebody with a lot of television stage fighting experience, which was something this character needs. That said, it really doesn't vindicate the fact that he is painted up in in, in Mongol makeup throughout, and y- you can't react to that well. Now, do they have any like? Um, did some did somebody mention that they have like full color? stills from this or loads of them okay. uh, there were they oh, did a wow. lot of behind the scenes production shots and you can find them they've turned up gradually over the years and they look really lavish because they didn't bother just skimping and painting all the sets in black and white 
they mm-hmm. went full color for them saying even if it's in black and white people can tell it looks better mm. i mean the reconstruction that i watched was one of the ones used of the full colored stills and yeah it's oh. it's nice looking oh man mine were all black and white i need to go back and find that my my main i mean it's it's lovely to know that uh my, even if my main the main thrust of me asking was um, how bad uh, Tagana's makeup was. Like, are we talking like <laughs> Klingons from the original series? Or? Uh, kind of. He looks he looks like a mixture between a Klingon of the original series and uh, Ming the Merciless in the old serials. So oh. it's not great. <laughs> it's, it's not great. <laughs> and it's especially weird. The other thing I really know him from is the episode of The Prisoner where he's number two. And he has curly blonde hair in that. And it just, you have to go to a lot of trouble to realize it's the same guy. Wow. Well, they just can't make Darren Nesbitt look like Darren Nesbitt, can they? So this is where we find out that Tigana has his own plan. And I wrote down something along the lines of, so I guess he's going to poison everybody and then run before they die. I don't know. It's, it, I don't know. For some reason, it sounded like he was going to poison them and run away yeah that doesn't really come to much right and this is where we find out that um you know continuing on in marco polo's narration that he just he's just poor marco polo being made fun of by the doctor and how terrible it must be and i i I love that that it's written in that kind of his his faux historical journal like i have to tolerate the doctor the journal's a major plot point it's not just voiceover this has all been thought of with an internal consistency that so many later Doctor Who scripts are not going to bother yeah. with. Mm-hmm. This is also where we find out that the Doctor is just busy sulking in his tent. Yes, he's, what was it, he's being defensive, I believe is what they said. He's being difficult or something, yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh, I also wanted to point out that in this is I just this is a random aside that I wrote down uh, that Marco Polo in the uh, CGI adaptation is a final like a final fantasy protagonist. So you definitely have to check that out. It's it's really good. Well, I mean, I know that I want to see Cloud take on Doctor Who. He's more like the the long, dark hair like the dark breeding uh, hair guys oh, uh, yeah, kind of he kind of looks like squall right i mean yeah <laughs> right right so i mean marco polo and his gun blade so exactly that's 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 where i was going with this yeah this is also where they uh, i found it interesting that they mentioned that the tardis is their their home for better or worse and that you know the big the maybe the, the one of the first times banding together as a cohesive unit and now we're we're seeing them kind of talk about their you know their their home base so to speak kind of setting up the general or maybe more saying out loud the general theme of all doctor who episodes pretty much well um, and it's and it's barbara talking with susan about it you know it makes sense for susan to refer to the tardis as her home but um mm-hmm. to have some of the characters who are just kind of passengers trying to get home um, mm-hmm. now seeing as seeing the TARDIS as their home mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so this is where I stopped the CGI and moved on <laughs> because I ran across the model they were using for Ping Cho and it was so offensive that I had to stop it's definitely um, oh, uh, go back and check that one out puckered geisha looks oh, no. <laughs> to the max it's really bad so Susan and, and Ping Cho have bonded and they're they're kind of sneaking around after 
after Tagana. What will the gang find out? You know, this is when we get the sandstorm, which was really pretty awesome. I remember hearing this, like the laughter that that had been kind of spliced into it. And I was like, did they make some sort of mistake? <laughs> like, is this like an error in audio processing? But then you know, later they... Yeah, you know, they they say, oh yeah, sometimes you can hear things in the storm. You know, this was sound design on purpose on every level. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I I like that they lampshaded it with the with the dialogue though, because I had the same question. I was like, are they supposed to uh, be hearing Tagana out in the storm or singing to uh, himself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, what's going on here? And then they talked about. Uh, all of the different kinds of sounds that you might hear in a, a sandstorm, it made it feel more supernatural. Right, right. That was definitely something that I thought was kind of interesting too, because um, this was the, at least so far from what I've watched, because I've only watched up until what we're talking about as well, that this is the the first major, like kind of supernatural thing that this is, she, she hears like Ian at one point, uh, calling out to her in kind of a strange way, which I guess is implied to not be Ian at all, or is it? I don't know. But Susan loses it and freaks out, and this is our first good freak out of the episode, so I think yeah. it's important to call that out here. Take another drink, yeah. Right. <laughs> Whereupon they are discovered by Tagana. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tagana back at the camp. You know, they're like, "Oh, Tagana's out." Marco's just like, "Eh, that's fine." Oh, yeah. but the girls are out. I think I, he just does that, man. You know, he's, yeah. a, he's a free spirit. <laughs> he's trustworthy. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we all come back to the camp and we kind of chill out. Chagana crushes fruit, hates fruit some re- for some reason. He just crushes the hell out of it. Now, I just want to say, I wish that we could see what that sandstorm looked like. Yeah. It must have been really awesome or at least i want to believe it was yeah that's one of the real things that i would just love to see from this episode just you know what it would have looked like with the sound and everything together because that could have been something you know i mean it could also look terrible for all we know right but the gold standard for the worst film scene of all time is still in a mystery science theater movie deep hurting with the Paddington sandstorm process. A sandstorm can look terrible on screen if, yeah. you, aren't, if you aren't careful. That's probably the thing that I would want to see the most if we can ever find it. And um, I, I intend to go back and see if there are any color stills of at least something in the midst of the sandstorm, maybe, because I would love to see what that looks like, even if it is just sawdust. Yeah, you hear that, CBC? Release the tapes. Yeah, please release the tapes. Sign GoFundMe. <laughs> so Tagana change.org. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Tagana suspicions are mounting. And uh, there's this really weird scene. Did anybody else think this is really weird? I mean, like it I suppose it's different. And I, I actually I would want to be really interested to hear what the novel says about this because there's this scene where like I guess Tagana pulls his sword on Marco Polo. It's like heads up, Marco. Like you know, you know, <laughs> gut check is, or something. Is that what that's intended to be? I don't. It was really weird. Reconstructions make it very hard to tell sometimes what's meant to be going on. There are two or three moments in this story where something that's a simple bit of business becomes really confusing because it's not you know perfectly visually clear. Right. Well, uh, the way they show it on the adaptation is just pretty much he was trying to show off. So it, it's, uh, I don't know, uh, it's, it's, it really doesn't make 
too much sense in there as well. So yeah, I thought it might you know be some some kind of intercharacter dynamic between them. I don't know. It was just like you know like Gurney Halleck attacking Paul Atreides periodically to test him or, or uh, Cato attacking Inspector Clouseau, you know, something like that. But it just really just, it's just, and it just ends up being him going something along the lines of, ah, oh, yeah, good job, Marco. Nice. You got your sword out. Good for you, buddy. Yeah, pretty much. And that's, and that's the end of that. Kind of a power play or something, you know? It just seems to establish, you know, hey, Tagana has a sword for the next scene where he's cutting all those water skins instead of right. using that poison for some reason. Right. Oh, good, good. Because I totally found myself thinking, like, did did I just miss it? And that crazy guy gave him, like, a special water skin cutting dagger or something, and that's what he said he was going to use in good faith? I don't know. But he tries to scoot again, you know, says he's uh, totally not afraid of no bandits. Yeah, since, you know, that's what they blame the cutting of the water skins on, bandits. So, of course, Tagan is just like, well, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, let me get this straight. Bandits snuck into our camp in the night when we were defenseless to slit our water so that we would turn around and a few days later be defenseless. Why not just kill them in their sleep? You know, I don't know. But maybe bandits worked differently than back then. This begins our arduous uh, desert scenes without much appearance of the doctor. But uh, Tagana, he helpfully offers to go and get the water and then uh, pours one out for his homies for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, and of course, you know, the doctor <laughs> does show up for, you know, to say a line and then faint. And also, you know, lead us to another uh, Susan freak out. Yes, precisely. I mean, it's basically like the cigarette burn on, on films, right? Like that's how you change scenes anymore. <laughs> so Tagana, you know, for whatever reason, he gets to the oasis and decides to <laughs> pour out some water for no reason. Treating yeah. <laughs> mustache there. Yes, precisely so. Just so. He has four different modes as a villain. There's the... I'm not sure if you're demons and I may have to destroy you, Gur villain. There's the twirling mustache guy whose plots make no sense. There's the one he plays with Marco Polo, where he's just like a psychopath looking at his neighbor's cat. And he's really creepy and effective because <laughs> he knows he's getting away with it. And then there's just this general attempting to haggle between four different people at once. I'm innocent of all these things, villain. It's it's very hard to piece them together in terms of the overall plot. I think right. that last one's my favorite. So we get into the cave of 500 eyes and everybody is despairing. But oh, out of nowhere, TARDIS water. And I, I was like, okay, so did like the plumbing start to work again? It ends up being... Uh, just condensation, which is actually a really good scene. Like, even if it was just kind of a shoehorned educational scene or whatever, like I, I really enjoyed the the acting and kind of the appeal to Marco Polo's logic. And uh, you know, it's just a name, right? It's just a name, but it's this thing. And didn't have you seen this before? And I thought that was really cool. And it's an interesting thing because it's one of the few writers who remembers. Okay, this cast has a science teacher. And a history teacher. And to be fair, if we're getting the history teacher to give an exposition lecture, we should probably give one to the science teacher. Exactly. And it's probably the, you know, best fitted in, you know, little educational bit because it has a story purpose. And it's tense. Like, I remember it like I was like, oh, man, they're they're, they're in trouble. Right. <laughs> because yeah. Marco Polo is peeved off. Like they've been hiding water and it's it's very it's a very like reasonable 
you know, like it's you can imagine that kind of situation actually going down and then kind of just getting really just getting lucky that Marco Polo has indeed seen something like this before. And he decides not to, you know, string him up or whatever. It's the most tense scene ever involving condensation, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, I thought it was really effective. And it has that after school special feel, you know, like they found a way to make it gripping, but still try and teach the kids something. And knowing half the battle, right? <laughs> <laughs> the more you know. Do, 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 do. <laughs> So Tagana's plan is screwed now. And this is a pretty great like scene where we see him trying to kind of, you know, weasel his way out of it. Um, I really liked, uh, I enjoyed Barbara in this scene because she was kind of, she was suspicious and, you know, really kind of sticking up for, well, also, um, you know, are these bandits likely to return? And it's, you know, pretty clear that she has an idea what's going on you know she's the first to point out that there's no campfires if there was so many bandits right you know it should be a campfire and it was really cold last night but of course marco polo is just like yeah well i mean if they had been here there would be a fire and there was no fire so they were you know maybe they didn't stay very long or something you know <laughs> yeah and tagana wasn't falling for any of the traps i mean he had an answer for everything they uh they set out to him so right who knows maybe he just spent all night thinking just in case or else maybe he's just really quick on his feet who knows well he certainly he certainly was right on point with that number 12 too like how many yeah. bandits were there 12 oh well i mean he was so quick about it that makes sense right even ian starts to get on board with this too but marco polo is like meh meh Yep. (laughs) I guess they get to, oh, I didn't write it down, but the next town. It's called Tun Huang, apparently, and the set looked suspiciously like lob outside. Mm. There are four more of these. I did notice that. (laughs) To be fair, it could very well have been just a still from lop. Right. This is true. (laughs) And the Silk Road's trading outposts were a standardized you know, government top-down thing in this period oh, that you. was regulated. They would have been roughly kind of a uniform sort of a deal. But at the same time, you might assume that they redress a similar courtyard set in several different ways. It, it seems rude to comment. Listen, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not ragging on the production values. They clearly did an awful lot with this serial. Uh, it's just something I noticed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If, if I can get more paintings like show up in the cave near the end of this episode for reusing a set like this, I'll take it. The sad thing is that in addition to the sandstorm where you really can't know for sure how it, how how good it looked, the Cave of the 500 Eyes is the same sort of thing. All sorts of writing about Doctor Who mentions that as maybe the creepiest thing in the whole Hartnell year. And it's nearly impossible just looking at the telesnap reconstructions to be entirely sure what they're what they even mean Mm -hmm. well that's that's what i want to see in color if it exists because you can tell that they used a ton of paint on it but that entire sequence it's hard to completely get the point of and that was apparently the thing of childhood nightmares something happens in there in the details that we just can't have anymore yeah I, uh, yeah. So this is also where Barbara begins to um, show off her uh, cultural knowledge. Uh, who is in the cave of a thousand Buddhas near here? And, you know, she's, of course, she's a history teacher. 
Um, I found myself remarking at this point, you could make an entire atlas just of like the caves in this series, right? Like you've got the cave of a thousand Buddhas and the cave of 500 eyeballs and the cave of skulls. And I'm sure there's tons more caves. The cave of the trying to jump over that pit for a whole episode. Oh, yeah. (laughs) R.I.P. Slowimpicus. You might be getting a cave where a bunch of apparently unstoppable robot zombie knights are frozen in a giant block of ice in the next couple of stuff. That's not getting ahead of ourselves. But uh, I heard nothing. At this point, they're getting ready to listen to Ping Cho's cultural exchange. And this is the. <laughs> well, this is also, I think, Ian. Was it, somebody talks about the hashashins first, which leads to the cultural exchange. Yeah. I mean, that's that's actually I remember I believe that's actually after uh, Ping, the Ping Cho cultural exchange. But I think that's what leads to her talking about it. I had it backwards, too. I think uh, he he at first says, you know, we still use a word from it. And I did not know where they were going with this. I thought there are two places that they could go. And they went with the assassin word that we get from Hashashin. Yeah, well, I know that we have, you know, that story about how the origins of the word hashashin as being related to the drug, which comes from Marco Polo's writings and is in all likelihood completely wrong. Well, listen, we're talking about like England in the 60s. It's not out of the realm of possibility that they would have that on their minds. This is also that the the point where um, Barbara is like, hey, Ian, I need to talk to you. Look, this Tagana guy, and he's like, shut up, Barbara. (laughs) 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 Repeatedly. You and your booty scapes. What the hell are you you doing here? Barbara, how dare you try and jumpstart the plot? Look, we're listening. We're about to listen to some completely unnecessary cultural exchange here. Why don't you just get out of here with that nonsense? And thus leads to uh, Ping Cho's story, which maybe somebody, especially one, you know, having read it, maybe you could fill me in here because I have absolutely no idea what was going on here, like at all. Like it just, it was just this fever dream. I heard Aladdin and Aladdin was bad, I guess. And then somebody kills him and, and the whole thing sounded like, like an allegory for taking drugs or something? Don't do drugs, kids. Yeah, but well, like- <laughs> my understanding is that it's not Aladdin, but a historical figure that's someone like Alahaden, who was a real historical figure. Um, I, I don't remember everything about it. I looked it up at some point, like a week or so ago, and it's completely slipped my mind exactly who he was. But he was a um, apparently some historical figure that the story is based on. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, the, the, the way they named it in the adaptation, it's Ala Eddin, Ala Dash Eddin. Okay. So, but what's the story even? Is it just a story about a guy who was mean and then got killed by another guy? Uh, so, kind of. <laughs> okay. the, the story as Ping Cho sets it out was that Ala Eddin and his band of 250 Hashashins holed up in this cave and there was an early... Emperor Hulagu right. that laid siege to it for three years until he was able to defeat them. Um, right. I don't really understand what the takeaway is supposed to be. Well, like that part is actually the only part I understood that when she's like, oh, and then the emperor came along and killed him. But it was everything before that. It's like he, he puts him to sleep and takes him to the land of milk and honey and stuff, stuff. I don't know. 
But in, in any case, it sounded good. I just had no idea what was going on. You know, in, in the grand tradition of like immediate foreshadowing, we, we cut to Tagana in that self-same cave getting called to task by, I guess, Boss Tagana or whatever for uh, messing up his plan to, to, uh, to kill everybody. And they're, they discuss their evil plans with some hobo that lives there. And <laughs> I don't, you tell me. And let's call him Marty the evil scheme hobo. I, yes. I, you know, I think they name dropped him as like something like Malik, but, uh, but I like evil hobo better. Well, I mean, yeah. And it, he, there's no back. He just lives in the cave, I guess. He's like, he's like the, like the cave, you know, innkeeper, right? If you ever have to schedule a meeting at the evil cave, you got to, you know, sign up on his website. He's like the Airbnb owner of the cave or whatever. So they're, they're, they're being evil. And then super sleuth Barbara shows up. Barbara Holmes uh, shows up and, you know, duh, 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 she gets captured. Yeah. Like right. immediately. Yeah. <laughs> like cave hobo is just like, hey, there's a woman here. Right. Did you, was there supposed to be a woman with you? And Tagana is like. Of course not, you know, <laughs> and she's got a cracking scream, too. It's a pretty good one when she gets captured. And so everybody notices that Barbara's missing. And there's definitely some uh, Marco. Marco Polo is very displeased about this once again. Yeah. Another Marco Polo freak out. Like, what in the name of Khan was she doing? My mysterious, magical stranger hostages just stay put like I tell them to. <laughs> Right, like what? The time women just refuse to stay in the tents. I right. don't get it. Yeah, this is completely not in keeping with this time period, you guys. So he and Ian and Tagana go out to find them, and that's when the Doctor and Susan and Ping Cho hatch their plan to go to the cave. Right, and so they, the mystery team, the mystery mobile team, sneak off. To the cave, whereupon Tagana is informed by who? Who was that guy? This the Senchu, yeah. This the the kind of like slimy butler guy. Um, you know, tells him that they've absolutely forced him to tell him where they were, and they, of course, are also um, they show up at the cave, and then we get our best Susan's freakout so far. And uh, this one was a good one. Does she have scissors for this one? Because <laughs> she doesn't. But no, this she's is... not quite creepy, Susan here. But um, it's a good Susan freak out. <laughs> yeah, this is this is this this is a pretty cracking scream here. Got a got a nice close up on her face. Just right. It... Yeah, it's, you know. it's, it's, it's kind of like Flanders with the purple curtains, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. And so that is our cliffhanger. And yep, Susan so... just screaming, the eyes moved! The ah! eyes moved! Ah! If anybody's seen the Italian Giallo movie Tenebra. Oh, yeah, where, of course. 
<laughs> it's kind of like, you know, forever screaming at the end of that movie. So that's that's where we end it. Yeah, and that's where we end uh, part one of our discussion of Marco Polo. We'll pick up next time with episodes four through seven. Kieran and Juan will both be back with us for that, but I'd like to thank them for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for having me. So we'll see you next time. Thank you all for joining us and see you for episodes four through seven of Marco Polo on Doctor Who's That. So uh, just as a reminder, you can tweet at us at at dr underscore who's underscore that. You can email us at that at gmail.com. Uh, please subscribe, rate us, share us. And I guess for now, until next week, we're all just going to go and sulk in our tents. Thank you and have a good night. <laughs>